Well, we're going to talk today about seeing our culture. And uh, all that's about this. As followers of Christ, um, as Christ followers and being Christians and part of the church, and that means that we're supposed to have a lifestyle where uh, we have a Christian worldview as we look at the world and things in the world and how we interpret things through a Christian worldview. Uh, but it also means that if we're going to be in this world as His people to make a difference, because He commissioned us to do that, then we have to learn to see this culture in which we live through the eyes of Jesus as we go about proclaiming the kingdom of God. Now, when we look at our scripture for today out of Matthew 9, we'll see that it tells us three ways in which Jesus saw his culture, even of that day. And I think they're pretty, um, pretty, very, pretty similar to uh, what it's like in our culture today. So, if you have your Bibles, you want to look there with me in Matthew 9, beginning in verse 32, or we should have the scripture on the screen for you. Or you got a phone app that you want to use, whatever you're more comfortable with, okay? Here we go. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. And Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, I think what we see, the three things we see here, uh, very simple of these, is that when we look through the eyes of Jesus in this passage of Scripture, and it may be a microcosm of of his entire ministry, first of all, there there were enemies who opposed him. Then there were people he saw wandering like sheep. And then there was the world that he saw as a harvest. Now, let's look at each one of them and see what it means for us today. We look through the eyes of Jesus. First of all, we see enemies who need the truth. It's a remarkable story that introduces this, uh, in, this entire section here that shows the compassion of Jesus and his fulfilling uh, why he was sent here. His purpose on life was to proclaim the kingdom. But it's interesting that it begins with healing a man who was demon-possessed, who was mute, and then he was healed from that. And everybody raved about it except his enemies. And who were the enemies? They were the church people of that day, the Pharisees, strict Pharisees. And if you remember through the Scriptures or you're reading through the Scriptures, you ought to see that there's always a battle that they raised. The Pharisees were always after Jesus, and and Jesus was always able to to one-up them with everything that they threw at him. He took it and he gave stuff back, not, in, not hatefully or spitefully, uh, but in the way that it needed to be done. And the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. They were trying to entice the people to believe that Jesus was really not the Son of God, but that he was demon-possessed. A few chapters later, Matthew 12, 24, the, these enemies make the same accusation of Jesus, that he's demon-possessed. And Jesus said, uh, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will stand. He said, if Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? That makes logical sense, doesn't it? If they're saying he's demon-possessed and doing this by the power of Satan, he said, well, if Satan drives out Satan, then his house is divided, okay? 
So then he goes on and says, and if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So all of this Jesus was saying is, he's operating under a power greater than that of Satan. He's not demon-possessed. He's not under, under the power of Beelzebub to cast out these demons. But he is the Son of God. He has the Son of God's power and right. So these were his enemies, and he saw them very clearly. And as he saw them, he did not fight them with his fist or in any other physical way. He simply fought them with the truth. He fought them with the truth. Now, look at verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Now, here's the application for us today, is that there are enemies of the gospel. We have enemies out there. We might not think so. As the church, everybody ought to like Christians and everybody ought to like us. But we have enemies out there. And we have to respond to these false beliefs about Jesus with the truth of the gospel. Jesus didn't fight physically. He fought with words of truth. So with spiritual eyes, we have to be able to identify the enemies of God's truth in our world. And many of those enemies today, or like the enemies in Jesus' day, they're quite religious. So one of the things we have in our Constitution that helps us is that we, the First Amendment gives us the right to what? Right of religion, freedom of religion. That's different than freedom to worship. Some are trying to say, now, you have freedom to worship. No, that's not what the amendment gives us. It gives us the right to have freedom of religion. See, there's a difference. People can say, All right, you, you, can, you can worship. And you're free to do that, whatever denomination, whatever faith, whatever way you worship. But you can't live it, see? That's different than being free, under freedom of religion. Freedom of religion says we have the freedom to choose our faith and our, and our worship, and then our worship and our faith affects our lifestyle. That's what's one of the biggest battles that's going on. It's a battle, it's a play on words. It's using the words. Don't fall for that. Don't fall for that. See, and the, say the first several hundred years of this amendment living under the Constitution, we didn't have any trouble. It meant the Methodists met where they wanted to and when they wanted to and the Presbyterians and, and the Episcopalians and the Catholics and the Baptists and all of that. Biggest conflict we ever had was, was just trying to beat each other to the, the restaurant or the cafeteria wherever we were going for lunch. But it's a whole different landscape now in the 21st century. We've got all kinds of religions that have come into our culture. We've got Muslims and Buddhists and Wiccans. All of those are free to worship in America, freedom of religion. Now, how do we look at them? Well, they're both a threat and they're also an opportunity. Now, rather than being threatened by them, we need to respond with the gospel. We need to respond with the truth and proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ. It's true of our culture today, all over the United States, that this is a vastly different cultural landscape than ever before. And that's the same thing that's true here in Northeast Columbia. God has brought the people of the world and their religions as well to us. So what do we do? Well, there are several ways you can respond. I mean, you might have seen the bumper sticker. Maybe you even have one. But a bumper sticker that says coexist. You've seen that? It's got all kinds of different religious symbols. Pretty neat way, actually, of spelling out coexist. 
But what it's talking about is the fact that what we need to do is learn to be tolerant of one another. And that's really saying there's not one specific way. You just need to be tolerant of what everybody's belief system is. My fear is that we've become so tolerant of other faiths that we've become apathetic about our own faith. We don't stand up for what our faith says. We don't even know what our faith says. And we have a tendency to say it's okay what people believe as long as they're sincere about it. We're living in a different world. And it's important for you to be informed about some things. Uh, Let me give you this phrase, religious pluralism. That's not too bad. It does mean that we have been invaded by a host of all kinds of religious faith systems. And we have to embrace those because of freedom of religion. Doesn't mean that we have to accept their belief system. But we we have to be tolerant to that. Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, all those mean, pluralism just simply means more than one. Now, the interesting thing about that is not every nation tolerates that, right? Not every nation around the world allows different faith into their country. You know, we we have people around the world who are exposed to the dangers of being in countries They do not allow Christianity. In fact, they don't allow any other faith except their state faith. We've seen the rise of ISIS, and we've seen uh, uh, Christians being beheaded and tortured because they will not denounce the faith in other countries. And that's because those nations are intolerant of other religions. But it's almost become, it seems like to me anyway, in our culture, that if we speak out about our Christian faith, that it's almost like we've broken some kind of taboo. It's almost like we're not supposed to do that. I'll give you a couple of examples, not calling any names. One athlete publicly declares and displays his Christian faith, and he's told, shut up, you can't do that. Another athlete desiring to be a pro football player comes out and announces that he's gay and he becomes a national hero. And if I remember correctly, I think our president even gave him a call to encourage him for being so courageous. I read this week online an article out of uh, National Review about Lance Corporal Monifer Sterling. Now, some of you in the military might have better understanding of this than I do. She was struggling. She, she was, uh, it was in the Marines. She was struggling with it. really was. She wasn't get, getting along well. But she was a Christian. She was a believer. And she posted... A paraphrase of Isaiah 54, 17 on her computer, which simply said, No weapons formed against me shall prosper. No weapons formed against me shall prosper. Now, maybe she was talking about her drill sergeant. Maybe she was in reference to the commanding officer or whatever. I don't know. But she was commanded by her supervisor to take it down. She refused. She was court-martialed. She went to trial without an attorney to argue on freedom of religion because, after all, other people in that office had other quotations and inspirational remarks from their faith. Now, I was told later, y'all always get the benefit of the early worship crowd, and some of you in here who are military might know this, that, that I was told that if she had taken it down, then filed a grievance against the, the supervisor, then she probably would have had the right to put it back up. But because she disobeyed the order, she was, dis- she was court-martialed and dishonorably discharged from the Marines. Now, that seems like maybe 
we've got a, we got a little battle going on here in our, in our country that maybe we need to stand up. And rather being so tolerant, I think we need to be, I think we need to be more forceful in our belief. So pluralism is one word. The other is religious syncretism. And that just simply means that syncretism is the belief that all religions are equal and they all have the same ability to get you to heaven. Now the choir sang that wonderful song, when we all get to heaven. How many ways are there to get to heaven so we can sing that song? One. You got it right. You rest of y'all know that? Only one way? Yeah. What does it mean when we say we syncretize? You want to syncretize your watch with somebody. What does that mean? Make sure that your watch says the same thing. Mine says 1154. Is that what yours says? About 1154. That's it. Okay. This thing here is about eight minutes, ten minutes fast. So I, I try to go by that one. I said I try to. See, all, all faith systems aren't the same, are they? They don't get us to the same place. We believe that Jesus is the only way, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, some Christians want to soft-pedal that. They're afraid they might create enemies. Guess what? You've got enemies about that already. You just might not be encountering them. Now, if you insist that Jesus is the only way, you'll find out who your enemies are. Because they will label you as narrow-minded, bigots, and intolerant. That's okay. As long as you speak the truth in love. Jesus told us to love our neighbors. He never told us to be silent. And so we need to see our enemies. Jesus did. And he responded with love and the truth. And you have to do them both together. You see, truth without love is too hard. And love without truth is too soft. We have enemies. We need to be able to recognize them. Through the eyes of Jesus, we see that in our culture. Now, here's the second thing we need to see. And that is, when we look through the eyes of Jesus, we see what he saw. And that is, we see people as sheep who need a shepherd. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It's interesting, isn't it? That the main analogy that the Bible uses to describe us is sheep. It's not something mighty like a lion. It's not something majestic like a wonderful purebred horse or stallion on display. But we're sheep. And the Bible says we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. The Bible also says in Isaiah, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Now why are we called sheep? Well, because sheep aren't that bright to begin with. You've heard and read about these stories about animals like dogs and cats getting lost somewhere, dropped out of a car, left behind, and, and somehow they had this amazing internal guidance system that they're able to make their way home. You never read a story about a sheep that does that. They don't have that. They don't have that inside. If you've ever been to a circus and you see all these animals performing, you ever seen a trained sheep out there? Nah. They don't. Yeah, I mean, they, they, you can't do that well. That's why they need a shepherd. On our recent trip they, uh, to, to uh, Israel, cooking, I saw them again, the Bedouin shepherds out there with their sheep. It's still that lifestyle they have, that nomadic lifestyle with the sheep out there on the hillside. You see, sheep are notorious about wandering off and getting lost. They'll put their head down to the ground and eat, 
and they'll eat and eat and eat until they don't even pay any attention to where they are. But they look up finally at the end of the day and they don't know where they are. They have to have somebody to come find them. Now look at the two words that Jesus used to describe people that are like sheep. Harassed and helpless. Harassed. Have you ever been harassed? There's different forms of being harassed. We got so tired of telemarkers calling at all kinds of hours. They were harassing us. And when they started calling before breakfast around 7.30, that's when we decided the landline's got to go. And I'm surely glad I don't have a landline during this presidential election. If you got one, I bet you're getting all kinds of calls on it. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, I had to, had to deal with a bully at school or maybe at work, you know. Uh, that's being harassed. They take your lunch money or they take your homework or worse than that, all kinds of things. You know, that's being harassed. That's sexual harassment. You don't want to be found guilty of that. Harassed just simply means you're bothered. You know, you, 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 you are, you're hurting. And you might be hurting today. You might be harassed for a variety of reasons. You've got family issues. You've got school issues. You've got work issues. You know, you've got financial issues. You've got all those kinds of issues. Let me remind you that Jesus is the shepherd who wants to be your shepherd. He wants to take you into his arms. He wants you in his flock. He wants you in his fold. Remember that. Remember the other word that he used, harassed and helpless. She pretty much are helpless on their own. That's why they have to have a shepherd. They live in a world where they're simply aimless. A lot of people today live aimlessly. They have no sense of purpose, no sense of direction. Jesus, again, is the great shepherd who can give you a sense of purpose and fulfillment. You know, like we've sung about already today. You know, he, he, he can, at the cross, he takes all of our sin, our failure, our guilt, our shame, all of that away. And he's the only shepherd who can do that. One of my favorite images uh, of Jesus or the work of God through Jesus is found in Isaiah 40, 11. It says, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. From my recent trip to the Holy Land, I think my all-time favorite treasure is the wood carving uh, of the shepherd. It reminds me of my calling, my ministry, and also reminds me every time I look at it, they on the shelf in my office, that Jesus is my, is my shepherd and I'm a sheep. And there is a picture of him going out in search of the one that was lost and leaving the 99 in the fold. Now, most of us here today have allowed Jesus to be your shepherd. If you haven't, you need to embrace him, confess your sins, and accept Christ as Savior. But it's not just to be saved and safe. We are challenged by Jesus in this passage of Scripture here to see what he sees and to be moved with compassion. Now, what does it mean to be moved with compassion? Well, compassion is difficult really to define. But we look at what Jesus did, and he saw the sin and the suffering of the people, and it went straight to his heart. And I think if we are moved with compassion, then the helplessness and harassment, the condition of the culture around us and the people who are lost will give us a gut-wrenching feeling in our, in, our, in our soul that we have to do something about that. Jesus did. He was moved with compassion. King James, New King James Version says, and he did something. He died for them. He died for them sins. He died for our sins, yours and mine. We're not called upon to literally die. But maybe we need to die to our lifestyle. Maybe we need to die to the way that we see people. Uh, one of the guys that I like to read is Ray Pritchard. Many years ago, 
he came out with two books on leadership uh, based on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and then later on, I found out some other stuff he'd done. And certainly with uh, being online, I'm able to follow him. He's got some good words. That's his thing that comes out every day, some good words. But he said something neat, I thought about this. He said, see, to see the crowds of the world requires us uh, to change something inside. He said, refining my view of humanity because all of us gravitate towards P-L-U. You know what that stands for? P-L-U. That means people like you. Now you think about it. Where do we gravitate? People that look like us. People that talk like us. People that dress like us. Right? People that believe like us. You ever had the experience of being in a big crowd, like maybe at a ball game, under a concession stand or whatever, and you just, you know, in a mass of people, maybe at a concert down at the Cocoa Center, there's just a sea of humanity around you, and you just feel lost and isolated. And all of a sudden, you see a familiar face. What happens? You kind of make your way to them, and you bond with somebody and say, oh, this, I know this person. This is somebody like me. Well, we got to change our thought. We got to train ourselves to see the spiritual condition of people that Jesus did. And what did Jesus do? He built relationships with them, He ate with them, He shared the gospel with them, and He was called the friend of sinners, right? A survey today, and I don't raise your hand, but just think about that. How, how many of you have a relationship with somebody who is not a Christian? How many of you have a friendship where you can be honest and open and talking with somebody that you care about who's not a believer? See, that might be a challenge for you this year. Get a relationship with somebody who's not a believer. See, when, we, when, we, when, we, when we're challenged to do that, I think we take two extremes about this thing about being called out and be separate and be different. That we take the one extreme that says, I'm not supposed to have anything to do with it. And oftentimes when people get saved and they leave their drinking buddies or whatever and all that behind, they completely leave them behind and don't have anything to do with them. Guess what? Those are your best friends you need to go back to and tell them what Jesus did to you. So that's one extreme you want to avoid them. The other extreme is, we want to blend in like the culture. We don't want to be different. We want to look like the culture. But at the same time, you don't know anything about the people in that culture you're looking like, and they need to hear something from you. So we need to have our eyes, spiritual eyes open, so that we can see the people the way Jesus did. Helpless, harassed, lost, no meaning, no purpose in life. They need a shepherd, and we know the good shepherd, and we need to share that truth with them. See, we need to see them lost without hope and helpless without purpose. Build a relationship with somebody who's not a believer. I don't think you'd have to look very far at work, at school, somewhere in your neighborhood, where you shop, where you, where you recreate, all those places. There ought to be people you can develop relationships with, where you can be honest and real. Then there's the third thing I think we need to see through Jesus' eyes, and that is we need to see the world as a harvest that needs workers. It's interesting, Jesus made a switch in his metaphor from uh, being a shepherd to being a farmer in his thought. He said, the harvest is plentiful, uh, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. 
Everybody would have understood what he meant. It was a completely agricultural society back then. Everything was based off of the agriculture. Uh, and so they would know exactly what he was talking about. For the farmer, everything was related to look forward to anticipating the harvest. First of all, breaking the ground, planting the seed, fertilizing it, weeding it, whatever and all he had to do to it was looking forward to the harvest. And Jesus is saying there's a harvest out there, not of plants, not of grain, not of corn or any of that, but a harvest of men and women and boys and girls who need to know Jesus. I think we look at the culture around us and we just kind of bemoan the fact that says, you know what? This country looks like it's down to tubes. Christianity is not a dominant faith anymore. There's so many other different beliefs in here that there's no way this country can change. There's no hope for it. Well, what have you done about it? Sit around with people like you and talk about the other people who are lost, right? That's basically what we do. I want you to notice what Jesus did. He, he, he says two things that are so important. He talks about a surprising opportunity. He says the harvest is plentiful. He looked out at that mass of people and he said, here are people ready to be harvested for the kingdom of God. And the application for us is that the, the fields are always ready for harvest, always white under harvest for us to tell somebody about Jesus. He said, well, you know, our country has changed so much. They're not going to listen to that. I want you to see a map. This is a map of the countries that have the 20th um, fastest growing countries to, growing in Christianity. And you see them, the, the, the different colors, and there's a code on the side. Probably can't read that. So let me just show, uh, got a list too, I think, of the 20 countries where Christianity is growing the fastest around the world. And some of them might surprise you. Nepal, China, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Oman, Yemen, Mongolia, Cambodia, Bahrain, Benin, Burkina Faso. Used to be Upper Volta, you remember that? Uh, South Sudan recently broke away and became an independent republic. Uh, Bhutan, Mali, Brunei, Guyana, Kuwait, Singapore, and the Turks and Caicos Islands. I want you to notice some things about that. Nineteen of the top countries growing the fastest Christian faith are in Asia and Africa. Eleven of those top countries are in Muslim-majority countries. There's not a single country on that map with a high Christian growth rate from Europe North America or Latin America. I'm, I, I'm not surprised that Europe and North America is not on there, but I am a little bit that Latin America is not on there. The highest Christian growth rates are found among all major non-Christian religious groups, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, and so forth. Now, there's also a list of the top 50 persecuted nations where it's the most difficult to live as a believer. And I said, I want to see a comparison between this growth of Christianity in these 20 nations and how it lines up with the 50 most uh, oppressive nations for believers. And I found that 11 of these top 20 countries that are growing fast in Christianity are on that 50 most persecuted and oppressed country list. Isn't that amazing? This week, Rick was the first one to tell me about it. He saw it. The, the a movie has been uh, advertised, The Insanity of God. I don't know whether you've seen it or not. I've only seen a couple of things about it. 
But it's the movie based on the book by missionaries Nick and Ruth Rippon, um, who interviewed over 600 persecuted Christians in 72 countries. It's sponsored, the movie sponsored by Lifeway, Phantom Events, and the International Mission Board. And the storyline is that the church not only survives under persecution, but it thrives. Now, be honest. When you saw that list of 20 countries there where Christianity is growing the fastest, and most of that dominated in those countries by Muslim faith or other non-Christian faith, you wouldn't have thought that they had a chance of growing, would you? But look at what's going on. That's where people are needy. They need a shepherd, and they are growing in faith. People are sharing the faith at the risk of their life. We don't have to risk our life, but it's a wonderful opportunity we have around us. Now, notice the second thing it is, that Jesus makes a somber observation. He says, the laborers are few. And that is a reality that's been true, I think, ever since Jesus walked the face of the earth and introduced us to the Christian faith. So what does Jesus call us to do? He calls us to pray. Why? Because every great movement of God in any country has been birthed through the people of God genuinely praying for revival and for God to do something, to move his hand. And so we, he, we, he, he calls us and challenges us to pray. Pray for workers to go into the harvest. Again, the old preacher Vance Habner says it like I understand it. He says, the tragedy of our times is that the situation is desperate, but the saints are not. I agree. It's even more desperate today than it was in Vance Habner's day. And I wonder if we are more desperate to do something about the situation or we're more apathetic. Here's the challenge when we look at our culture through the eyes of Jesus. That as followers of Jesus Christ, we ought to see that there's work out there that needs to be done. We ought to see that there's work that needs to be done to bring the kingdom into this world and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. We have to remember that good news is only good if it arrives in time. So, we need to see our culture. And Jesus calls us to see our culture as he does and to share in the harvest of souls for the kingdom of God. Father God, we thank you that you are a loving God and in your love you did not condemn us but you sent your son Jesus Christ into this world that we might experience your love, your mercy, your forgiveness and your grace. And that we might know the great shepherd who would carry us in his arms with all the baggage that we bring. And that we, like lost, helpless, harassed sheep, would be safely in your fold. And then, Father, we thank you that you have entrusted to us that charge to see the culture around us and respond to the needs by speaking the truth in love. May we do it faithfully in your name and for your glory. Amen.